Um, the reading today is from Daniel chapter 2, verse 1 to 6, and then chapter 2, verse 46 to 49. Nebuchadnezzar's dream. In the second year of his reign, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His mind was troubled and he could not sleep. So the king summoned the magicians, enchanters, sorcerers, and astrologers to tell him what he dreamed. When they came in and stood before the king, he said to them, I've had a dream that troubles me, and I want to know what it means. Then the astrologers answered the king, May the king live forever. Tell your servants the dream, and we will interpret it. The king replied to the astrologers, This is what I have firmly decided. If you do not tell me what my dream was and interpret it, I will have you cut into pieces and your houses turned into piles of rubble. But if you tell me the dream and explain it, you will receive from me gifts and rewards and gate honour. So tell me the dream and interpret it for me. Then we're moving on to 46 to 49. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell prostrate before Daniel and paid him honour and ordered him ordered that an offering and incense be presented to him. The king said to Daniel, Surely your God is the God of gods and the Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries, for you were able to reveal this mystery. Then the king placed Daniel in a high position and lavished many gifts on him. He made a ruler over the entire province of Babylon and placed him in charge of all its wise men. Moreover, at Daniel's request, the Lord appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego chief ministers over the province of Babylon, while Daniel himself remained at the royal court. This is the Lord of the Lord. Will you fight? No! We will run! And we will live! Shame on you! This could be the greatest night of our lives. But you're gonna let it be the worst. And I guarantee a week won't go by in your life. You won't regret walking out, letting them get the best of you. Well, I'm not going home. We've got too far! And I'm gonna stay right here and fight for this lost cause. A day may come when the courage of men fails. But it is not this day. The line must be drawn here. This far, no farther. I'm not saying it's gonna be easy. You're gonna work harder than you ever worked before. But that's fine, we'll just get tougher with it. If a person grits his teeth and shows real determination. Failure is not an option. That's how winning is done. Believe me when I say, we can break this army here. And win just one for the Gipper. But I say to you, what every warrior has known since the beginning of time, you've got to get mad. I mean plum mad dog mean. If you would be free men, then you must fight to fulfill that promise. They just cut out their living guts one inch at a time. And they will know what we can do! Let no man forget how menacing we are. We are lions! You're like a big bear, man. This is your time. Seize the day. Never surrender. Victory or death. That's the Chicago way. Who's with me? Clap! Clap! Don't let him die! Clap! All right, let's fly! And gentlemen in England, now are bed.
I love that video. <laughs> you can probably tell. I discovered it as a, as a youth worker um, quite a few years ago now. Um, it was always fun to watch, uh, even though the kids I was working with most of the time didn't know most of the films. Um, I wonder how many of the clips you recognised. Um, you wouldn't use it as a youth worker now. It's two, two minutes is way too long, isn't it? <laughs> it have to be about 15 seconds. Um, you know, tension spans are not what they were. Um, I showed it because I wonder what comes to your mind when you think of inspirational leadership. Um, maybe you think of uh, great figures from history, uh, sort of JFK, Mandela. Um, maybe you think of military leaders like Napoleon or, or civil campaigners like, campaigners like Greta. Um, maybe you think of sporting captains and coaches, um, not so much the England cricket team recently. Um, maybe you think of politicians or activists uh, or teachers or parents or community figures or those who have shown uh, great bravery or great courage in the face of danger. Maybe you think of inspirational speeches like the clips we just saw. Um, you can't beat a Charlie Brown quote. Uh, the book of Daniel is, among other things, um, a story of inspirational leadership. I think it's one of the best times I heard Daniel preached. Uh, I was with a, with a couple of hundred young Christian leaders. They were kids aged 14 to 18, and they were attending the One Life Young Leaders Conference. And One Life is an organization that was set up by a youth minister um, at my old church, although long before I was, I was there, um, who didn't believe that we should be raising young people in the church, teaching them to wait until they are 18 to start changing the world. Um, and it brought together some amazing leaders from all walks of life, um, vice admirals, business leaders, chief constables, all people who had excelled in their fields, particularly in the area of leadership. And the purpose was to just bring them together with these young people to kind of to challenge them and mentor these teenagers to just get on with it. Um, go and lead wherever God led them to influence the world. And some of the stories that came out of that were, were, were amazing. I remember one young person from Luton. Um, one summer he was visiting Egypt with his uh, dad. His dad was Egyptian. And he saw these kids just playing football out on the streets. Uh, with no shoes. And he asked his dad about it, you know, what's going on? Why don't they have shoes? And um, when he came back to the UK, he just decided to sort of start collecting shoes. And he, he ended up starting a charity um, just so he could kind of collect shoes together, send them out to Egypt. And then through the church there in Egypt, distribute these shoes to the kids. And he um, got churches collecting and he, he did assemblies at his school. He did assemblies at other schools um, and, and got people collecting these shoes. And um, these shoes were taken out eventually by the lorry load to Egypt. And this is just like, this is one 12-year-old kid who saw a need and he took seriously Jesus' heart for the poor and he did something about it. It didn't cross his mind that he was uh, you know, too young or he should wait until he was older. I'm going to miss a page. If I miss a page, it'll be a bit quicker, but it won't make any sense. Anyway, the, the One Life Conference that year, they, they preached on Daniel. And it was perfect because as we've seen, the book of Daniel is, um, well, actually, you know, it's, it's primarily a book about God's sovereignty. But the center 
characters, the central characters, these four young Jewish men from the nobility, uh, teenagers taken from their home in Israel uh, into exile in Babylon, where they're stripped of their identity, they're enculturated into a pagan world, they're brought into the service of this tyrannical king, Nebuchadnezzar, um, you know, who's legendary down the ages for his cruelty, I guess. And that's the story we've heard so far. Um, if you want to catch up on that, you can hear the first two parts of the series looking at uh, Daniel chapter 1 on SoundCloud or uh, looking at our Facebook streams. Actually, we're also going to have part two, slightly confusingly, which you heard last week, is going to be at the 6 o'clock tonight. So if you missed part two and you'd like to hear part two, um, then you can come along tonight and there's another opportunity to hear that. And chapter one ends with Daniel and his three friends having gone through this three-year process of indoctrination, having taken a very risky stand in refusing to eat the food from the king's table. But God blesses them and he, he equips them in all sorts of ways, which you know, kind of added to their, their diligent study and learning of their, their, their kidnappers, their host community. Um, it brings them into positions of influence in the Babylonian court. And that's all great. It's a real success story. But that's just chapter one. And what we're looking at today is what happens next. Um, what is life going to be like for Daniel and Hananiah, Azariah and Mishael, a.k.a. Belteshazzar, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego? The Hebrew four. Um, we said that would be their Marvel Comics name. Um, what's going to happen to them now that they are in a position of some influence? And the answer is, spoiler alert, um, things are going to be really tough. They're not going to be easy at all. That's the theme throughout the rest of the book, or for a lot of the chapters that we're going to be looking at. Let's take a look at the story. I'm just, um, I'm aware I, I didn't pray, so why don't we just take a moment to pray. Uh, Lord, thank you for your word to us. Thank you that you speak to us through it, and uh, thank you that you give us your Holy Spirit um, and I pray that you would guide us now as we, as we come to your word, that you would um, teach us, you give us soft hearts to hear what you're saying to each of us. Lord, that we may know you better and know how to live um, for your glory uh, better this week. Amen. So it's a, it's a long reading, Daniel chapter 2. So we heard the beginning and the end. That's what Adele read out. And I'll do my best to kind of paraphrase or summarize what happens in between. Nebuchadnezzar, the all-powerful, all-conquering king of Babylon, has a bad night's sleep. And he's troubled by a dream. He calls his magicians, sorcerers, and astrologers to interpret the meaning of the dream. And uh, the advisors assemble. Again, sounds a little bit like a Marvel film that didn't quite make the cut. Either that or a Downing Street event. Sorry, too soon. Um, and says, okay, tell us the dream. And the king says, no, you tell me the dream. And, uh, you know, it, it reminds me of a scene in Harry Potter, the, the fourth book, I think it is, Goblet of Fire, uh, which Nathan's been reading recently. And Harry's in this final challenge, and in the maze he comes across this sphinx um, blocking his path. And the sphinx gives him a riddle and three choices. So, one, answer the riddle correctly and be allowed to proceed. Two, answer the riddle incorrectly and be attacked. Or three, choose not to answer the riddle and be allowed to walk away. And uh, Nebuchadnezzar offers his advisors only options one and two. 
There's no middle ground. Either they get it right and they receive gifts and rewards and honor, or they get it wrong and are cut into pieces and their houses leveled for good measure. Some people are really grumpy after a bad night's sleep. I guess it's sort of one way to check whether the advisors are the real deal or not. They ask for the dream again. King calls them out for stalling and he repeats his threats. And in, in, in despair, his advisors say this, this is verses 10 and 11, there is no one on earth who can do what the king asks. No king, however great and mighty, has ever asked such a thing of magicians and enchanters or astrologers. What the king asks is too difficult. No one can reveal it to the king except the gods, and they do not live among humans. So Nebuchadnezzar says, okay, I'll tell you then. No, he doesn't. He orders their instant execution. These wise men are no good. Get rid. So Arioch, the commander of the guards, uh, some translations call him the king's chief butcher. Hold that image in your mind. Uh, heads off to carry out this command. And along the way he meets Daniel. So picture from Daniel's perspective, bumping into this crazed butcher, kind of king of the guards with his bloody meat cleaver. And, you know, he's on his way to chop you up. And Daniel's standing in the face of certain death. You know, if Arioch doesn't carry out his orders, then his own neck's on the line. He exercises diplomacy and he speaks to him with, quote, wisdom and tact. Just note that. He asks Arioch what's happened, uh, who explains, and Daniel goes straight to the king, what's to lose. And instead of asking them, the king to, to tell him what the dream is, like the others did, he asked for time, just straight up, he asked for time, promising to interpret the dream. And incredibly, the king seems okay with this. And this is how Daniel now uses his time. He goes back to his house, which I guess he is hoping will not be bulldozed. And he goes back to his friends and he urges them to plead for mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery so that they won't be executed. And during the night, Daniel has a vision. And in the vision, the, the dream and the meaning of it is revealed to him. And uh, he, he wakes and just kind of full of excitement and joy, he makes this sort of incredible declaration of God's wisdom and power and his sovereignty and you know, basically acknowledging him for everything that he's done and for answering their prayer. But the drama isn't over because now Daniel has got to go to the king and explain the dream and its meaning. And for sure, Daniel knows that Nebuchadnezzar is not going to like what he has to say. So uh, Arioch takes Daniel to the king. The king asks him, can you tell me the dream? And if I'm Daniel, I'm not messing around now. I'm coming straight out with it, hoping that what I've seen is, is right and not the results of you know, a weird, trippy, stressed dream. Uh, I remember early in the pandemic, I started having some pretty vivid dreams. I think it was just my brain processing this kind of the world being turned upside down. Um, stress has real effects on the body as well as the mind and the spirit. But Daniel pauses to explain one thing to the king first before he launches in. He says this, no wise man, enchanter, magician or diviner can explain to the king the mysteries asked about. So he's saying the same thing there as the other wise people. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. He has shown King Nebuchadnezzar what will happen in the days to come. 
Remember what's on offer to the one who can complete this challenge, not just keeping their life in their house, but gifts and rewards and honor. But Daniel says, no, this isn't down to me. This is God's work. And he explains the dream. It's a, a dream about um, enormous statue. Do go away and read it if you've got time. Uh, it's a statue. It's made up of different materials. The head is gold. And then um, uh, working down, the, ma- the materials become less and less precious and strong, ending up with kind of feet of clay, which is where that famous phrase comes from. And a stone is cut out, not by human hands, it says, and is thrown at these feet of clay and iron, um, which then shatter. And the whole statue falls and is swept away as dust. While this, this stone, this rock, uh, grows into a huge mountain which fills the earth. That's, that's the vision. And Daniel proceeds to the meaning. And the, the truth is it's bad news for Nebuchadnezzar. The worst news, in fact, everything that is most precious to Nebuchadnezzar, his kingdom, his legacy, is going to be stripped away. He's going to lose it all. He's the most powerful man in the known world, and it's all going to come crumbling down. And Daniel paints this picture of successive empires. It's a fascinating interpretation because historically speaking, we know that much of what he describes takes place. The the successive empires of Babylon through Persia, Greece to the Romans. And it all ends with this incredible prophecy saying that God is going to send a different sort of king whose reign will be everywhere and will never end. And I'd love to dig into that a bit, but there's not time. But it's really interesting and and kind of historically verifiable. And of course, it's all pointing to Jesus. And it's crazy for Daniel to think that this can end well for him, at least, because, you know, power mad rulers don't like being told when their time in charge is coming to an end, right? You know, read for that Pharaoh or Herod. This is how Daniel finishes. The great God has shown the king what will take place in the future. The dream is true and its interpretation is trustworthy. Daniel drops the mic and possibly prepares for the blow to be struck. But the most remarkable thing happens. Um, It's what we read in the second part of the reading. Nebuchadnezzar, the all-powerful, prostrates himself before Daniel makes him governor of Babylon, the center of this great empire, makes him and his friends his top advisors. And he says this, surely your God is the God of gods and the Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries, for you were able to reveal this mystery. You see how Daniel's crediting to God has now worked out. Remember when the story started, you know, a volatile king after a bad night's sleep ordering a slaughter? Look where it ends. The king humbled on his knees, praising God. Is that not the most kind of unexpected outcome you could imagine from this whole story? It's an incredible twist um, for the good, not just of Daniel and his advisors who get to keep their lives in their houses, but for Babylon and for the whole empire, an evil ruler who is now bowing to God. Now, um, I realize I split chapter two into uh, chapter one into two parts. I kind of wish now that I'd done the same with chapter two, because there's so much that we could look at here. Um, but I'm aware that we're, we're kind of already pretty deep into our time. Um, I'd just like to briefly highlight three elements of Daniel's approach before thinking about what this has to say to us living in the UK today, um, not you know, Babylon 
two and a half thousand years ago. So three things that Daniel did when he was faced with this problem. He spoke with wisdom and tact, he prayed, and he gave God the glory. So two and three, um, they prayed. They recognized that what they faced was beyond themselves. Only God could help them. They would need discernment and wisdom and no little courage. Prayer was essential. Praying with friends was essential. We talked about the importance of community last week and you know how we want to grow as a community, as a church in this year. I guess I could add how we want to grow as a praying community this year. And kind of likewise, giving God the glory, which follows the same sort of logic as number two, as number, well, where are we? Two, three, number two. Um, but the decision to credit with God, to, the decision to credit God sets the tone for the outcome for Daniel, for his friends, for Nebuchadnezzar in this whole story. We know, don't we, that humility is an essential trait of wise leadership. If Daniel takes credit for this, Babylon is just going to end up with another kind of despotic authority figure who thinks they're all that. If Daniel wins for himself, then really he loses. They all lose. But Daniel doesn't lose. He subordinates himself to the true king, which is what winning looks like. And then we've got this, um, the first one, speaking with wisdom and tact. Now, this is not how people tend to react to these sorts of pressures um, and these sorts of pressure situations. Wisdom and tact is not how I naturally respond to challenging circumstances. Just ask my children. Um, we said already that there is a parallel between Daniel in his day and the church of today of exile, this theme of exile. For Daniel, it was literal, um, a literal geographical exile. For us, it's cultural, it's intellectual. It's the language, um, exile is the, the language the New Testament uses to speak of the church in the world today, awaiting the return of Christ as strangers in a foreign land. And, you know, perhaps the church hasn't always been the minority voice in culture. You know, certainly in this country and in large parts of the world for long periods of time, it's been um, at times the dominant voice. And we uh, could have a conversation around the rights and wrongs of the church and its relationship with power and the issues thrown up by that. But I don't think you can deny today that Christians are a minority um, you know, in this country, and I, I don't mean in a sort of any way sort of linked to, um, say, ethnicity or, you know, that kind of societal what box do you tick in the, center, uh, in the census sort of way. I mean, people who believe that God is real, um, that he, he came to earth, he has a name, he's called Jesus, that he became one of us, that's Christmas, um, that he died and was buried and was raised, that's Easter, and he ascended into heaven, uh, leaving his church behind to do the work of his kingdom until the day he returns and makes all things new, empowered by his Holy Spirit. We, we're um, considered fringe, let's be honest, to believe the teachings of this man, Jesus, are the best way to do life. I mean, what do you mean we need to die to self to really live? You know, what about being true to myself or being my best self or fulfilling myself? You know, what do you mean I need to repent? You know? Surely, if it feels good, just do it. We're a fringe minority. And a former vicar of mine put it like this. He said, the church used to be at the center of society. And when you're at the center, you can just talk and people will hear you. But now the church is on the margins 
And when you're at the margins, the only way to be heard is to shout. And the truth is, no one likes to be shouted at. Shouting at people is not good. Apologies if you're one of those people who walks around with a sandwich board and a megaphone. Um, But I don't think that's the way of Jesus. Daniel spoke with wisdom and tact. He didn't rant and rave. He didn't go on the attack. He calmly and rationally explained the truth to power throughout this story in a way that honored and dignified both himself and the people he was talking to, even his opponents and his enemies. And we talked last week um, about the kind of temptation in, in the face of sort of overbearing cultural pressures to either um, assimilate to that culture, to kind of join in, or to withdraw from it, to kind of step out. And I think another mistake we can make is to kind of go on the attack, you know? Um, again, it's not the way of Jesus. Generally, the only people that Jesus really got up in the face of were the religious leaders. Wisdom and tact and holding firmly to the truth. That's how you influence from the margins. And, uh, you know, I asked at the beginning, who do you consider to be an inspirational leader? I've been, uh, not long to go, but um, I've been talking a while, so turn to the person next to you and say, name one person you consider to be an inspirational leader. I'll take a quick drink. Okay, so um, it'd, be, it'd be fun to go around with the microphone, but I'm not going to do that for now. Okay, eyes on me, please. <laughs> never, never let people start talking. It's just like... <laughs> anyway, it's fine. I've I, I got a drink. That's right. It's your own time you're wasting. <laughs> Sorry. So... Um, Again, continue your conversations. Um, I find myself drawn to people, to leaders who, who lead from a position of weakness um, or vulnerability. People who find themselves kind of in exile-like situations, yet with wisdom and tact and with tenacity, exert their influence. Um, you know, you think of Mandela in prison, you know, locked up, but having an incredible influence from that place. Um, or you know, in a fictional one of my, the clips from there, Andy Dufresne in the Shawshank Redemption, he's kind of incarcerated and all power is taken away from him, yet he becomes enormously influential. Um, not just to the prisoners, but the guards as well. Think um, Dorothy and the Wizard of Oz as compared with the Oz, the great and mighty powerful. That's a, that's a and we'll save that one for another day. It's a really um, fascinating study of leadership styles. But as God's people, I don't think we need to be afraid of influencing from the margins. It's the natural environment for followers of Jesus. If you look throughout you know, history, certainly back if you look at the New Testament. You know, uh, we're a minority on the fringes working for the good of even the Nebuchadnezzars of this world. Speaking God's truth to them with wisdom and tact. Being God's instrument of blessing to those that we disagree with. And disapprove of. That's what we're seeing with, with Daniel. You know, that might not be a tyrannical ruler as such. It might be a boss or a teacher 
or a playground bully. Maybe it's, you know, also just recognizing the circumstances of our own lives. You know, even the really troubling ones. And, and realizing that those are not a sign that God's blessing is not on us. You know, that if he really wanted to use us, he would sort those things out first. You know, maybe you think if God really wanted me to be kind of at my best for him being an influencer, then why the heck is he letting me experience this or go through this or feel like this? This can't be his will. And God's will, of course, is a complicated question. But the book of Daniel teaches us this, that a group of teenage boys who have their lives destroyed, are kidnapped, exiled, indoctrinated, renamed, persecuted, threatened with death, they are right at the center of God's will for them. None of them were living their kind of first choice life. How much would they have chosen life to be different from how it was for them? But God in his wisdom and his love allowed them to be in this situation. And as a result, they changed a king and a culture. You know, don't underestimate how God is, wants to use you or is calling you to, to influence because of your uh, fragility or the difficulty of your circumstances. You know, I mentioned teenager Teenagers stepping up to lead at the start of this talk. You know, the truth is God always, has always used teenagers. You know, think Daniel, think David, think Esther, think Mary, think the disciples probably, we think, and so on. God takes what the world thinks of as weak to shame the strong. He takes the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. For the record, I'm not saying that teenagers are foolish. But you know... 2 Corinthians 4 verse 7 says this, we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. God gets the glory. God doesn't need strong people or brilliant people or whole people. It's great if you are those things. Um, sure, and you know, he's working on that. He'll get there in the end. We'll get there in the end. But for now, he just needs jars of clay like you and me in our mess, uh, you know, like Daniel, looking at our circumstances uh, or circumstances are not of our choosing, way beyond our control. And just saying, Lord, I'm yours. I'm prepared to do your will. Whatever the cost. To love my enemies, to bless those who persecute me. And stand in your truth with wisdom and tact, right? So much more um, I wanted to say, but it's time to come into land. Um, you know, Jess has been away for the last few days with some of her friends, which is wonderful. Um, but uh, left with my three boys, we, we went and had a boys trip to Myrtle Avenue. If you don't know what Myrtle Avenue is, it's the road that's a bit of grass just before the end of the runway at Heathrow. And um, where you could stand under the planes just before they touch down. They love it. Um, but at that range, landing seems very, very fast. <laughs> so I'll attempt a very fast landing. So here's the application point uh, for this week. Lead from wherever you are. I.e. not from where you wished you were or from where you think you should be. 
Leave from wherever you are. That's it really. Um, Each of us is somewhere. Each of us has influence from the youngest to the oldest. Um, We are all influencers. You may not be an advisor to the king. Um, You might be. Um, Leadership is simply recognizing whose lives you impact and then choosing what that impact, what what you want that impact to be. To be an influencer in Jesus' kingdom is to choose to influence in his ways. And uh, if you don't know what those are, then tell your preacher (laughs) because you should um, and he should be telling you. So leadership for Jesus starts wherever you are today.